Outdoors. Hello and welcome back to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, episode 173 with TJ Schwanke, brought to you, of course, by iHunter, Canada's number one digital hunting companion. <laughs> Today we've got April and Brennan, a very enthusiastic Brennan. I am back. <laughs> I am back. Brennan's, Brennan's been away for a little bit. He's been very, very busy at work, uh, busy into the evenings, working long hours, and of course, out of service as a remote BC and Alberta can be. So he's back for some intros and outros with me. I'm back for some intros. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel about being back on the intros oh, and outros. It's, it's awesome. I'm still in the bush in camp, but I'm able to... Uh, Get a hard line out with the interwebs and, uh, you know, actually participate. <laughs> it's been a while since we've heard his voice here on uh, on the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Um, what, uh, what have you been getting up to in your evenings? Brendan and I usually, we usually chit-chat like in the morning, in the evening, and when he's got some time during the day, we have a little bit of conversations. But after his work hours are over, I usually let him do his thing, whatever he wants to do. Um, with his friends or by himself until we talk at night. So what have you been up to in the evenings? Yes, thank you for letting me hang out with my friends and do my own thing in the evenings. <laughs> uh, not a whole lot. Uh, any of our listeners know what living in a construction work camp is like. Um, you, you don't do much. You just kind of be happy with what you have out here and, uh, yeah, watch a bunch of TV because yeah. the Internet is not too good in uh, remote parts of Alberta. Yeah. No, we've uh, the other night actually we had a fire, and we <laughs> we were a little uh, confused as to where we could have this fire, so we just kind of drove up one of the old uh, logging roads here, or construction roads, I guess, and found a little cut line. Kind of checked Eye Hunter app and saw that it was a uh, Crownland, so we're like, well, perfect. So we you know blazed down a few trees and had a little fire. It was great. That was nice. Uh, most excitement I've had in a while in the bush here. So, and that's kind of one of the cool things about iHunter is you can um, purchase maps from like different you can, from different provinces, so you can still have your account. Like my account would be in Manitoba, and that might be my primary um, province and primary map set. But you can also purchase maps from different provinces and be able to find out all the same things like. Crown land, WMAs, private land, who owns our private land, um, any kind of like conservation corridors, etc. Mm-hmm. And it really is easy. We needed an answer quick because we were bored and we're ready to have a fire anywhere. And it, uh, you know, it kept us legal, kept us safe, and very quickly. It was great. How did you guys make sure that your fire didn't get out of control? What did you do at the end? We left it. No, we, you know, we had a shovel next door we got a bit of snow here so i mean it's a little bit different in the winter time but fire safety is fire safety you should always get in uh you know abide by the best practices have a shovel get ready to extinguish it if things get crazy make sure that you're you know certain distances away from tree lines and from any other combustible materials right so mm-hmm. it was a uh, it was just a an effort on everybody to have a good time have a good responsible time and then put out the dang fire with a bunch of snow and, and dirt that's great 
I mean, you guys need to get out of camp once in a while, so it's kind of nice when you can get out and get some fresh air and sit in front of a crackling fire. Yep. Um, For anybody who doesn't know, uh, Brennan and I are headed to Argentina in April. So I have been, we have been going back and forth about all the different things that we need. And we've put in a nice hefty order with Badlands Canada uh, to get some camo and just some things that we need, like gaiters for our boots and extra little gloves and just like game bags and some random things like that. So we've been putting in our orders here and I have been sort of, I have a little, I have a little set kind of laid out on the spare bedroom bed. I've got uh, Brennan's pile and I've got my pile and I've got our basic camo in his pile and my basic camo in my pile. And then I've got toothbrushes and toothpaste and toothbrushes and toothpaste and all of my hair products and Brennan's like soap bar. And so we're, we're making a pile, <laughs> but it's super exciting. We're very excited. What are you looking forward to for Argentina? Hunting. Hunting. Yeah. Such a man answer, right? Hunting. Hunting. I'm looking forward to hunting. Uh, get out there and be outside yeah and you know, we're in another country so just soaking it all in when i'm there yeah living in the moment as it were i don't know it's yeah. just uh it's just something exciting that i've never really had the opportunity to do you know i, I don't have a big trophy hunting background um mm-hmm. and obviously you know in the last year had a few family things happen and just really looking to branch out a little bit and do those things as a younger man and enjoy yeah. life kind of live live life and get those experiences while you can because life is very short that's right it is you know blink and it's gone so get out there and do these things mm-hmm. try it i'm i'm very much looking forward to like the experiences and learning like a little bit about different cultures and experiencing some culture stuff or just like different ways that people do stuff and um and just spending some time with Brennan because I don't get to see him very often. So it'll be interesting to just do something that we are, we love hunting and we love being in the outdoors. So spending time doing those things together is always very fun. And like I said, we don't get to spend a lot of time together. So I'm super excited about that. So we will, we will definitely be taking panoramic outdoors and the podcast along on our little adventure here we're planning on taking the podcasting gear down to argentina and doing some kind of podcast we're not sure exactly how that's going to look yet but some kind of podcast and giving you guys some kind of experience um while we're down there that's right and then the other uh fun thing that panoramic is going to be doing here right away is um we are headed to the outdoor show so Sheldon for sure and myself most likely on the Saturday night and the Sunday we will be at the Panoramic Outdoor Show on April 26, 27 and 28 of 2004. Um, we're hoping to have some gear and um, swag, merch, whatever you want to call it at the at the outdoor show and um, we're partnering hopefully with some of our other sponsors and partners such as iHunter um, to have some of their items at the outdoor show as well so hopefully uh, we get to see you there and if you are at the outdoor show please come uh, stop by the booth and say hi and uh, have a little chit chat with us I think Sheldon's going to be doing a podcast there so we hope to see you there that's great what do you figure do you think we should get into this podcast with DJ 
I definitely think that we should get into this podcast with TJ. So we'll see you guys on the other side. Well, today's guest we have on the Panoramic Outdoors podcast is a returning guest, and we're very excited to have him on. The last time I seen him was actually at the Parkland Outdoor Show, but uh, welcome back, TJ Schwanke. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> awesome. Um, so yeah, last time I seen you was at the Parkland Outdoor Show. What is, what's your uh, takeaway from that? How many times have you been to that one? That was actually our first time there, and man, it's a okay. great show, like so many interested people, and I was shocked actually how far people drove to come to that show. Yeah, it's big, and and hopefully it keeps growing, because the, not the one thing, but the one thing that I really like about it is, um, you know, all, all that money or a lot of the money goes back towards the outdoors and to, and to kids, um, so it's really good to see it's not somebody just, you know, patting their pockets, so um really like that part of it um how we're going to start this off is the five burning questions i don't know if you remember doing them a couple of years ago maybe a year and a half ago when you're on last yep you um, bet right on so i'll just ask them quick you can answer them any way you want um and my first question is if you could take anybody hunting and like let's say like celebrity or singer or someone that you find interesting who would you take on a little hunting trip actually it's weird as it sounds i'd love to take my mom hunting she's going to turn 90 in may and she's never <laughs> been hunting but she's been a huge supporter of mine i think it'd be really cool to get her out there nice does she like eating wild meat and everything oh. else oh they live on it so they're pretty happy oh. about the fact that i do hunt oh perfect um my second question for you, if you had one hunting rig and that could be like land water air whatever if you had one hunting vehicle what would you go and pick up for yourself uh i'd love a new f-350 just uh pull the horse trailer around and uh we don't hunt out of a vehicle too much we do mostly on foot and on the horses and stuff so i think that'd be about perfect maybe a yeah. f-350 platinum maybe how's that if somebody's buying for me <laughs> a little heated seat action yeah <laughs> the next one um part of my french called fuck you money but if you just had a pile of money that dropped on your lap and you had to treat yourself. You can't give it to anyone, and you can't invest it. What would you do? And you can't answer with an F-350 because you're in <laughs> <laughs> um, I would probably go on a Markor hunt. That's one of those things that will never happen for me. It's just so far outside my realm of, of income. But uh, I think it would be really cool to do as a, the ultimate mountain hunt. Oh, yeah. Right on. Uh, my fourth question for you, um, about speaking about hunting, your most memorable hunt, the one that just comes to mind that's been always on your mind. Let's go with. I always hate that question because they're all so memorable. But um, I drew a, a wood bison tag in Alberta in um, and hunted just this past December. And oh. it was uh, like it was a 0.04% chance of drawing this permit. And I got lucky and drew one. And a good buddy went with me and we killed uh, just a great old bison. So Maybe because it's I'm getting old and my memory's not great, and it was the most recent, but uh, it was it was a great hunt. <laughs> yeah, those bison hunts, and I mean, not only that, but I would assume it almost bring like out a bunch of history when it's you know you're harvesting it and and taking the meat off it. You almost like start thinking back about you know our forefathers and everyone else that survived on those things for years, right? Oh, um, for sure. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, my last question for you: You've been in the outdoor industry for a long time. Have you ever been starstruck by? Uh, by a fellow hunter, fisherman, angler, anybody like that? Uh, 
I don't know about starstruck so much. I mean, there's definitely a lot of people I really look up to. Um, Larry Weishin's probably the one guy who I met when I was very, very young in my career. And he actually helped me, gave me some breaks and things like that. So I was probably a little starstruck when I, I met him and we've become good friends since. Nice. Right on. Okay. So now that we got the five burning questions out of the way, let's get into the, the meat and the potatoes of the podcast, what I like to say. Um, if you don't know who TJ is, you can actually scroll back in our catalog and find the first episode we had with him and we got to get to know him really well there but i want to kind of jump right into things tj and talk about that that bc wolf hunt and we just had joe pell on not long ago he mentioned it We've, we talked a little bit of wolf hunting but it's been kind of sitting in the back burner for me and i want to talk about it more and kind of learn about it and i think talking about it is a great way to educate people so can you kind of just give me the basics of what's going on in BC with this wolf hunt that's going on? And, I, and the reason why I'm asking you is I believe that you wrote an article in, um, I can't remember what magazine it was, and I just read it. <laughs> but uh, you do have a little bit of, of knowledge on the on the BC wolf hunt. Um, I wouldn't say I'm super up to date on it, but I mean, I, my belief is they're culling some wolves there to to help on gila populations. And, you know, as controversial as it is, and I mean, I love wolves. I love wolves as much as anyone. You know, there's nothing to me says wild places like wolves do, but, um, you know, they're hard on ungulates. And right now, you know, I think according to most biologists would agree, we have a big overpopulation of wolves. And yeah, their numbers will manage themselves eventually, but not before there's a huge, huge crash of many of our ungulates. So I think it's kind of our responsibility as, as managers of the land, managers of the wildlife, which we are. I mean, we have to be if we want healthy. We can take a lot of those peaks and valleys out of, you know, the, the ungulate populations by also managing predator populations. I mean, I'd never want to see predators go away. But I think if we can maintain a, a healthy predator population and a healthy ungulate population, um, you know, it's it's good for everyone. I mean, you know, I well, actually I was just uh, a, a guy I know that outfits for wolves uh, showed a few pictures today of, uh, of some actually adult wolves and they were almost starved to death. They were so emaciated and. You know, it's it's cruel nature, and when we we let the populations get that high, that's how they crash is they starve to death. Yeah, um, you know, and like the thing is that the wolf population, I believe, in Manitoba too, is high. We've got really high numbers. I talked to a lot of outfitters um, in northern Manitoba, and they're, and they're doing very well with wolf, like guided wolf hunts. Right? Um, there's lots of wolves around. Um, my like when I observe the whole situation, let's say just in Canada in general with with wolves, is like you know if they're without putting the tinfoil hat on, if there's the climate change happening and we're getting less and less snow, I mean a lot of these moose populations etc. rely on deep snow in the wintertime to get away from wolves. You know it's it's almost like there's a perfect storm coming where predator numbers are just going to go through the roof. Oh, absolutely. And they are. I mean, there's there's no question that wolf numbers are absolutely through the um, the roof. And we did have some pretty high numbers of ungulates for quite a while. And, you know, the wolf population rose in, um, in response to that. And then once those ungulates start to go down, you know, that wolf, they keep going up for a while. And um, those, I don't know, it's just, we need to manage things. We need to manage things based on science. We need to manage things based on conservation and quit managing things based on emotion. Yeah. The, the anti-hunter thing is I think what you're alluding to. And I mean, you know, you have a, a stuffed animal or a cartoon and it's all of a sudden that's like, they might be like the nicest animal in the, in the woods, you know, and the, and wolves for instance are like the nastiest at times, you know, um, but like, where where is it at in BC with like the anti-hunter and protest against the science side of things? Is that like an issue that BC is dealing with as well? 
Oh, it's huge. I mean, I, I would say BC probably has the most vocal and listened to anti-hunter um, faction in probably all of Canada. Um, certainly, you know, the NDP government out there has, has got a pretty sympathetic ear to the anti-hunters. And boy, it's showing. I mean, you know, we saw some really draconian um, changes to hunting regulations in the last few years. And, um, you know, we're seeing a bunch of anti-hunting groups buying up outfitted hunting areas and stopping outfitting in them to protect animals. There's a lot going on there that, um, you know, probably isn't tolerated quite so much in other provinces. So, yeah, it's a it's a huge problem out there. And and what are some of the things that, I mean, what have you been writing articles for since, like, I think I read since 1987. Is that true? 1986, yeah. 86? So you, you've yeah. written a lot of words down on pieces of paper. <laughs> so what, what was you... Like, what would you do or what would you suggest to other hunters? Like, what can we do as, as people that use the land and, and, and stuff like that? What can we do, not say to fight the anti-hunters, but maybe, like, find a common ground and have a conversation? Well, I mean, I think the big thing is stick to science, stick to science management. Uh, you know, I mean, as much as we want to armchair manage animals and second-guess our biologists and things like that, and you know, they probably don't always get it right, but for the most part, they're pretty trained professionals. And, you know, if, if we can manage animals, and that means all animals, predators included, scientifically, um, it just benefits all animals. And I think that's what we need to show that, you know, killing wolves ultimately benefits wolves and, you know, killing deer ultimately benefits deer. And hunters are conservationists. I mean, they're not mass murderers as, as some anti-hunters would believe. And I think we need to stop worrying about the anti-hunters in the fact that trying to change their mind because we're never going to do that but you know there's that 80 percent that sits in the middle between hunters and anti-hunters that i mean they're open to learning and we need to keep an eye on the antis like we can't totally ignore them and we need to you know be up to date on what they're doing but that real battlegrounds fought on that 80 percent in the middle and we just need to convince them that hunters are good conservationists and we're following science and we're following, you know, science-based management plans. Yeah. I have like this thing and I've mentioned it in many podcast episodes is like as a, as a hunter and outdoors person, I think that we need to get more outdoors people involved in the conversation. And and when I say that, I, I don't mean us as hunters. I, I mean like the photographers and the hikers and the, and the people that want to see these types of animals while they're out in the woods. Because I like, I remember having a conversation with Vince Crichton, um, rest in peace years ago. And like, we we're talking about moose populations and that was one of the things he said. And it always stuck with me is like, you need to get those photographers at the table and you need to get, you know, the kayakers and the hikers and all these people that want to see these beautiful animals and see stuff and nature and not in a zoo, you need to get them at the table. Um, you know, and then we've got rights based hunters. We've got a whole bunch of different govern governing bodies, but like, what's the trick to get everyone at the table? Like, We've been talking about it for years. What's the trick? Yeah, and I mean, and that is like it's you know how to eat an elephant kind of thing, one piece at a time. Is I think is a better way to approach it sometimes. And I kind of look at you know like I, I would say probably in an average year we convert five people to you know that weren't hunters, they weren't any hunters, but convert them to the fact that yeah we're not bad people. You know we are doing conservation management with what we do, but you kind of look on that as a scale. Well, big deal, five people, but you know there's 145,000 hunters in Alberta. Like if every one of those hunters converted four or five people every year, you know, in 10 years, we'd have the whole population of Alberta on our side. Yeah. Yeah. The conversation I think is what we lack in. And um, I mean, we have some awesome groups that are doing a lot of good things and 
right around the whole realm of the outdoors. Like you can look at, you know, Ducks Unlimited to Mental Wildlife Federation to a whole bunch of other groups that, that do this. But it's just like, how do we get more people involved? And I think that's the trick. Like that's the tricky question. One bite at a time. Sure. But it's just like, ah, where do we like, it's just like, we, we got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, if you come up with a solution, I'll be on board with it. So, and I think it's a question that, you know, gets asked daily, you know, among hunters that are concerned about that. And, um, you know, we try to take it proactively in, in what we do. And the fact that, you know, we try and convert people individually and, you know, if we can work with groups to do it and, I don't know. I think every hunter out there just needs to keep spreading that, that good news message. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we kind of mentioned about moose hunting. That's another thing I wanted to kind of pick your brain about. It seems like you've wrote a few articles about moose hunting across Western Canada. And I know, like, for instance, we do have problems here in Manitoba with population numbers. And uh, we can, you know, point fingers at, f- like, forestry. We can point fingers at access and a whole bunch of other reasons. Um but like when it comes down to it, is hunting really demolishing the the moose populations? Um, and and the article that I read was actually one that kind of broadcast across Western Manitoba, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. What are the moose populations like in Alberta, Saskatchewan um, that you've been seeing in the last few years? Um, like I, I think they're declining. I mean, certainly I think in the, the farmland regions and the parkland regions, they, they're probably still stable or increasing, but. Over most of their traditional range, and, and like you say, there's there's a whole host of reasons. And I did a, um, an article for Outdoor Canada not too long ago on this, and there was a great study out of British Columbia what, you know, the primary mortality was on moose. And, you know, it, it wasn't, you could point a finger at any one thing and change it. it. It was, there was multiple factors, but there is no doubt that our moose populations are are in trouble, I think, right across Canada. Um, I was actually just reading some out of Newfoundland the other day that um, hunters are having a harder time getting moose there. And I mean, you know, Newfoundland yeah. is noted for being crawling with moose. So absolutely. I think, you know, definitely in the West, um, moose populations are decreasing. Yeah. And the one, th- the one thing that I did read in your article there that it really kind of jumped out at me is because I've heard this, like I've worked in Northern Manitoba and Thompson specifically, but heard from a lot of moose hunters, um, not about starvation, but about spraying for broadleaf. You mentioned that in your article. Do you have any insight on that? What does that mean? I mean, there's probably moose hunters or anybody out there listening might be like, what does that mean? So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so certainly one of the forestry practices is when they um, when they harvest timber, they plant um, coniferous trees back in there. But a lot of the deciduous trees are um, first to grow back just naturally. So what they're going in there is, is spraying those to allow the um, coniferous trees to grow and it, it works. Uh, um, unfortunately, you know, moose uh, rely on that new growth of deciduous trees to to survive. So yeah, I mean, that's definitely been one of the, the big factors that was identified um, in the mortality study that was done in British Columbia. Yeah, so it was like basically just starvation then or is it just that they're spraying this and they were leaving areas and going to where the food was no i mean it was just there was less carrying capacity for the moose so i mean you know breeding was less survival rates were less everything else down the road um you know and certainly you know uh wolf populations have a huge impact on on moose as well and you know it's kind of that same old thing we were talking about you know that the wolves are at an all-time high right now and moose are starting to decline so you know before if you lost 10 calves it probably wasn't a huge blow to the population but now it may be the entire population's gone um born or bear month bear mortality is is really high as well on moose calves so for moose they 
they're facing a lot of issues right now. And and certainly there's, there is a lot of, you know, hunting pressure, both from, you know, the first nations and from licensed hunters. Yeah, absolutely. Like we've had like, you know, closures and stuff in Manitoba uh, and all that stuff to try to supplement or try to regain the, the moose populations in areas, the whole spraying the broadleaf thing. Um, like I said, it was interesting to me because I know a guy very well and he's got a camp up in, in Northern Manitoba and, to go to his camp, he had, he's got to travel, you know, four or five miles off the beaten path through some crazy train. And um, they went in there and logged that few, quite a few years ago now. And he talks about that all the time. And he said they came in there and they sprayed for this broadleaf, whatever type of spray it was. And he said he didn't see a rabbit track, a wolf track, no, nothing in that area for at least four years. And um, once that I don't know, once that dissipated, I guess, or whatever happens, he said that all of a sudden there's rabbits again, there's wolves again, there was moose again, but there was a four-year hiatus of nothing was in that area. It was like a dead zone. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's it's a new growth. And I mean, we all know how beneficial fire is to, you know, especially these yeah. populations, just because you do get that, you know, new growth right away, you know, the berries and things like that coming back very quickly. And, you know, if we try, we can mimic that with logging as well. But if, if we take... Um, you know, those, those broadleafs, as you say, coming back quickly out of the equation. Yeah. It's, it's really detrimental. Yeah. It's like the forestry practices and I'm not a forestry guy or I know, I don't know much about it, but I mean, um, I had a conversation with a guy that was talking about forestry practices and like leaving blocks of, of wood, um, standing basically, and, and then not spraying it. And then basically making like little corridors for animals that can travel, from one corridor to another that wasn't that far away from each other, right? So clearly there is some talk um, with people other than two guys on a podcast, but there's more talk obviously in that forestry side of things where they're starting to implement different ways to try to maybe correct some of the old (laughs) shitty practices. Yeah, absolutely. And I know the BC Wildlife Federation has been, you know, quite involved in this as well. So, I mean, it's, you know, and that's why groups like that are so important. I mean, they have trained professionals on board with them and, you know, they can talk more intelligently, like you say, than you and I can about it because, um, you know, that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right on. No, I just, uh, like I said, I was reading some of your articles there and I, and whenever uh, I get the chance to pick your brain or ask you a few questions i'm going to take it so those are the two main ones you know the last time that we talked we talked a little bit of uh, about land management and fencing um and some other things too but what i was kind of hoping we would maybe you know kind of shoot the shit about is a couple hunting stories and the one that you've already brought up was your it was your bison story can you maybe talk do you want to talk about that or is that something that you're airing at, at some time or um, it will be going to, yeah, it'll be going to air, I think in February or March on wild TV. So, um, everybody will definitely get to see it, but, um, I guess just the, the quick synopsis of it is, um, there was, a, so we've had a, there's, there's a wood bison herd in Alberta. It was okay. established in the eighties and, uh, you know, we have wood bison that are also up in wood bison national park, but, um, this new herd that was established, it was established to be a disease free herd separate from the other ones. And it was part of a management plan with the Yukon, BC and Northwest territories that they would all kind of establish these, these herds. And once those herds got to, you know, more than sustainable levels, um, they would offer hunting. So about, uh, there was a hunt, I think it was, um, I don't know when it was like 2014 or something that lasted for about five years. 
And there hasn't been a hunt since then. And we went through a regular draw process uh, this year in Alberta, and there was no mention of it. Then all of a sudden, it's September. Um, they announced that there was going to be this draw for wood bison. And so you had to get your draw in in September. And I think they drew it in October. It was it was really quick. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and it was kind of the result of the fact that they'd done some counts on the wood bison and decided, yeah, the herd is, is much too large. So they need to, so um, there's several um, First Nation bands and, and Métis groups up in that area. And they've worked actually quite collaboratively with the government, um, you know, to get this herd going and, and to make sure it's sustainable. So what they do is they get two thirds of the permits that are given out. And then the other third go to non-Aboriginal hunters. So this year there was 120 permits. So 40 went to the non-Aboriginal um, hunters. And of that, there was almost 12,000 applications for those 40 permits. And oh, I mean, wow. I, I've been applying for draws for 40 plus years of my life, and I have never drawn anything that I wasn't in the top priority pool for. So I actually brought up the Alberta realm and looked and it said awarded and I shut my computer down and started it up and it still said awarded. <laughs> so um, I bought my That's tag funny. about three seconds later in case it was a mistake. Um, yeah. So, uh, so the season, for the non-Aboriginal hunters started on December 1st and we had a couple hunts early so I couldn't get up there till December 15th and a good buddy of mine Kevin McNeil um, he's been a guide and outfitter for for bison in Alberta for forever and uh, he phoned me up and he says I'm not gonna outfit you I'm not gonna do anything he says I'm just coming along as a buddy on this hunt so he came along brought a couple snow machines and uh, we went up to a place called Zama City which is pretty close to the Northwest Territories border and it was shocking how many people reached out to help um you know a lot of oh, people yeah. that have drawn this permit you know back when it still was they reached out um you know people from the area you know guys working on the rigs up there it was just i was shocked how the community was so tight on it we got a lot of information and went up there and, and this hunt is usually there's six feet of snow and it's minus 40 up there well, we got up there and there was about three inches of snow and, um, you know, I think the huh. coldest temperature we saw one morning was minus 25, but most days it was, you know, close to zero. So it wasn't your typical bison hunt. So it was very pleasant, but it was very yes. hard because typically what happens when the snow gets deep and cold up there, there's two or three areas the bison really congregate in. And once you find fresh tracks, you're going to find bison. Uh, we're up there. They were just constantly on the move. Um, we tracked some groups that were moving, you know, 10, 12 kilometers at night. So right. it was really hard. Um, I wanted to shoot just a big, big mature bison on this tag. Um, the great thing was the season's three months long. So I had December, January, February. So I wasn't in a panic to shoot a bull early. So uh, we hunted four days and saw quite a few bison and, and some good bulls, probably bulls, you know, we considered six to seven years old. And finally on day five, which was our last day up there for, for then, uh, we found what was actually a, a pretty exceptional bull. Uh, it wasn't like, a, I guess it was, it was a lot of driving. It was a lot of snowmobiling and just putting on miles, trying to find where the bison were at that minute, because where they were yesterday didn't matter at all so kevin had told me he says these bison can soak up a bullet like you've never seen before so i was shooting my 375 h and h and um probably shot him at i don't know this close it was 100 say 100 125 yards and the first shot i was like i missed like he never flinched he never did anything so second shot he was kind of quartering away put another one in him nothing again i'm like did my scope get bumped like what happened so third shot um i put it right on his shoulder blade and uh and then you could tell he was he was hit and he was hurt 
And he walked about 10 more steps and fell down. And uh, my first shot actually almost totally obliterated his heart. So, uh, yeah, so I mean, my shots were good. The gun was on, everything else. So, um, walked up to him and wood bison are the, are the biggest land mammal we have in North America. And this okay. was just a massive, massive bull. We figured he was probably about 2,300 pounds. Oh, wow. And it was just the two of us. And um, four and a half hours later, we finally had him cut into pieces and loaded on the on the sleigh for the snowmobile and got him back to the truck. But uh, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience. And I kind of, my back hurt for two weeks after that. I was just about crippled and everything else. And I said, <laughs> I don't know if I'm ever going to do that again. And somebody asked me a week or two ago, um, you know, are you going to put in for that hunt next year? And I'm like, you bet. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no way. Um, I, I'm going to back you up a little bit here because there's a bunch of interesting things you said. And especially because we were talking about, you know, licensing and stuff. So, you know, you said two thirds went to the, to the indigenous group and then one third to, to license hunters. Right. Yep. See, like, and that's like the type of, like, I wish they would do that with some of the, some of the areas around Manitoba, some sort of like, like amalgamate that idea as in like your local, you know, communities can have this many tags, but we'll also give out a draw for, you know, 10 tags for moose, for instance, right? In the porks, the porcupine mountains or wherever. And then that way you could like make money, you know, as well. Um, but like the, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about the licensing is like, what if you don't mind me asking, like, what does it cost to put in just for a draw in Alberta for that? $3.80. $3.80 and, <laughs> and then your tag, and then what's the tag worth? I forget. It was right around 60 bucks. So, I mean, not, okay. not a lot of money at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, to me, it was just a great example of, um, you know, the indigenous groups and the government and licensed hunters all kind of working together for, for the common goal. Um, and the other cool thing about um, this bison hunt is, I mean, we had to take blood samples from the bison. We had to submit tissue samples. We had to, you know, take an incisor bar in. So there's a lot of scientific data comes out of this hunt as well. So it's really closely monitored and um, it seems to work good with everybody. I mean, we ran into several um, indigenous hunters while we were up there and, um, you know, they were super helpful to us and yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Um, and that, that science-based hunting tactic too is really interesting. I mean, is, has there ever been to your knowledge, any like CW, CWD in bison or? Not that I'm aware of in bison. I mean, we've, had a few cases show up in moose recently, but uh, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah I think that... we had one caribou as well. So, oh yeah. Um, and then you said you're in you're in the middle of December when you went. Yeah, so December fifteenth, and got back just before Christmas. So it actually took us. I like I brought all the quarters home and all the meat home, and um, it took us five days to butcher it. So had. My, my parents over and dad's 90 and mom's 89 and mom was work, working a knife as good as anyone on Christmas Eve um, before oh, we nice. had Christmas Eve dinner. So it took us pretty much five days to get it all butchered and, and into the freezer. Right. Um, <laughs> I'll get back to that in a second. The the December 15th or when you went up there. So what is the breed like when, so are you hunting these after like breeding season or like how how does that work with like the bison yeah so part of the reason they hold the hunt so late up there is i mean just because of access it's you know it's a long ways north boreal forest you know very swampy very you know getting around is is really hard so it makes it easier but that's also when the bison hides are in their prime 
Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, and um, one of the other real dangers of, of bison in warm weather is when you get them on the ground, I mean, if you don't deal with them super quickly, um, the meat can spoil really fast. So that's another advantage. So I, I think that's kind of a lot of the reasons why they've chose this time of year to, to hold a hunt. Right. Yeah. It's just interesting. Cause like, clearly like we don't have that here and you don't hear about bison hunting too often. So I, going to be asking about all these questions um um and even like when you were you know butchering it with your with your parents and everyone else like was it what was it like as a as a meat source like um did you find it any different like than a moose or something like was it was it i don't know was it different at all well it was size wise it was probably two or three times as big as a moose so i mean it was, it was just overwhelming the size um you know we, we took the neck and the hump meat off and it was probably 200 pounds just from that alone. So, I mean, it was oh, just wow. all the chunks of meat were just enormous. Like I've worked on a lot of moose in my life and, you know, packed moose out on my back and on horseback and things like that. And, you know, thought they were big, but nothing compared to this. But as far as the, the quality of the meat goes, um, I would, I mean, I, I hate to always think, compare it to things, but it was just probably as close to beef as um you know, anything oh, no. that we've ever had, you know, being an older bull, it's, it's probably a little bit tough, but not like I was shocked actually how tender it was. Yeah. And then on your hunting trip there, I mean, you said you're cutting tracks and kind of following them around. How many animals do you think that you would have came across then on your, on your trip? Um, like probably bison close, yeah, we probably saw close to a hundred bison. Over the, um, okay. So typically this time of the year, um, if you find a group, it's going to have cows, calves and younger bulls in it. Uh, most of the old bulls are either going to be solitary or maybe two or three together at the most. So, um, you know, so when we were seeing the groups, obviously we went and looked at them and checked them out, but you know, true to that, all the groups had younger bulls in them. So when we found this guy solitary, we were, you know, pretty sure we had a good bison. And then once we snuck up on him, we were, you know, positive we did. Right. And, and why do they do that? Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick time out to thank one of our sponsors and that is Co-op. With over 160 local cooperative associations and 600 communities and over 200 million active Co-op members and 23,000 employees, they're a company that is local. They invest in our communities and that's why we love them. So thanks a lot to Co-op for supporting our podcast. If you have the chance, go and check out your local Co-op or if you're traveling through, stop in and say hi, get your gas, get your fuel, get your lumber get your agricultural stuff, get whatever you need. Check out co-op. Thanks again. Um, I don't know. It's just bison behavior. I, I guess the way they are. And, I, you know, I guess elk are pretty much the same. And I think a lot of herd animals, um, that's typically what they do. You know, the bulls typically go off in the wintertime. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's predator related or food related, what it is, but it's, it's fairly common behavior. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then what about like the head of the, this buffalo bison? Um, what was it like? I mean, to handle an animal like that, like the head's massive, right? Oh, like it's, it's like a two person job. So I didn't actually get the head for mounting. I took the whole hide. So I'm, I'm getting like a, like a full Buffalo robe done. Just so I, I think that's <laughs> nice. pretty cool. But I mean, it was, I bet it was easy 300 pounds, maybe more, but I mean, it's not a solid piece, right? So it's like trying to move 300 pounds of jello around. And uh, so you just kind of rolled it and pushed it and, yeah. Um, thankfully Kevin had a, he had a couple snowmobiles with us, but he actually had a big nine foot, um, sleigh that he pulled behind one of them. And it was, so it was easy just to roll stuff into it. And, uh, and then once we got back to the truck, we had a couple of ramps to kind of roll things into the back of the truck. Oh yeah. Um, and then my, I guess my last question for the, the bison part of things or 
might be my last question. I might surprise you yet, TJ. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of mentioned it earlier, but like, did you have any like thoughts or feelings when it came to like getting this animal on the ground when it comes to like our background, culture, et cetera, and especially the culture of indigenous people? Like you maybe found a little bit of more respect of like some of their hunting practices, like hunting in that type of condition and, you know, that far north, et cetera. Like where did you, like, how'd you feel about the, the hunt in general? Well, I mean, we were filming it for the TV show, obviously. And, um, yeah, usually yeah. I walked up to an animal. I got the gift of gab and I kind of walked up to that one and I was, I was speechless. Um, you know, I, I think part of it, it was, it was such a rare opportunity. Um, you know, just so few people in Alberta will ever get to hunt a, a free range wood bison. But like you say, also there was a lot of cultural significance there and it, it's just, you know, Canada was made basically on bison and, um, yeah. You know, and, and these wood bison, I mean, they've they've lived up north for a long time. I mean, they're they've been separated from our wood or plains bison for you know forever. Um, they're they're almost prehistoric. I mean, it's when you see a wood bison and you see a plain bison, there's there's really no difference once you see the two together. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Like I've I've read uh Steve Renell's book, I think it's American Buffalo. Um, yeah, those those creatures on our earth has always been intriguing to me and very interesting. And, you know, just to imagine, you know, the stories and stuff that I've heard and read, just imagining um, the Plains of Buffalo, you know, by the millions, stopping yeah. trains and waiting hours for them to cross. And then, you know, the Woodlands uh, bison is a whole different animal, but at the same time, it's just like it's got that connection, right? Oh, absolutely. And if you want to take off on a tangent for a second and talk about cultural food and, and animals, uh, I can do that. Yes, please. <laughs> so two two years ago, um, I don't know why, I've always wanted to hunt walrus. And okay. uh, so an opportunity came up at a community where a, a friend of mine is an outfitter, or a, a booking agent for, for Arctic hunts. And he had a new community, Coral Harbor, that they were going to run some walrus hunts. So he needed a couple of guinea pigs. And um, I was keen to jump in on this one and uh, so we went up to Coral Harbor and and hunted walrus and I don't know the, the really cool thing was I mean hunting a walrus is not the toughest hunt you'll ever do and you know it doesn't require a lot of stalking and sneaking and things like that but just being part of a hunt that is so culturally significant so um, so the Inuit get you know they're allowed to harvest so many walrus a year and I mean they can harvest them themselves or they can bring you know outside hunters in to do it but the cool thing is, I mean, every ounce of that meat still remains in the community, um, and it, it's it's the prime meat. So typically the way these communities work is they'll have a number of community hunters. So, you know, there may be 10 or 20 people up there that hunt for the whole community. And so those are the guys now that are the outfitters and the guides and things like that. And, you know, they're the guys that take you out, and rather than them pulling the trigger on a walrus they allow you to do it. So, I mean, you bring some, some money into the community and these communities are typically terribly impoverished with, you know, zero employment kind of thing. So it's a real win there, but um, you know, you're kind of acting as that community hunter for, for a bit. So yeah, I went and um, shot a walrus up there. It was just, it was kind of one of the coolest experiences of my life, just seeing a walrus. I mean, I, you know, never seen a walrus outside of SeaWorld kind of thing in my life. And we pulled up to this place aptly named Walrus Island and uh, you know, probably saw, I don't know, a thousand walrus on this island and ended up finding a big bowl that we wanted to take. And I ended up taking it. And um, it was probably about midnight when we left the island and it was about a 60 mile 
run in the boat back to the community. And it was just, it was in July. So, I mean, the sun never really set and it was surreal going back, just this kind of orange sky and looking at a walrus and, you know, along with these Inuit guys that were, you know, so happy that, so, so kind of the funny end of this story though, is um, I said to Troy, our, our head Inuit guide, I said, so this meat all goes to the community, right? And he goes, yeah. I'm like, how do you let the people know that you're coming back with this walrus? Because so, what they do is they just leave all the meat at the wharf and people just come and take it. He goes, okay. yeah, he goes Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's totally traditional, you know, Inuit walrus hunt uh, meets social media. That's funny, man. That's a good story. I, um, <laughs> I, I dated a girl actually when I was up in Churchill, I dated a girl and she was Inuit um, and her grandma and grandma and grandpa or grandma for sure. They, they used to send her down like meat and stuff. And she, and she like, like I wanted to try it. Right. So we ended up eating beluga and like raw beluga and I didn't eat it for long. Like I had one piece or whatever, but it's just like, when you talk about food and culture and like, obviously it's mixed very, very pure. It's it's super amazing, and and like it almost makes you sit back and look at your own, you know, your own life. I mean, like, why is there so many things that I'm attracted to in life when it can be super simple, right? Like, um, like the, the like when I when I talk about um, being in Churchill, like eating like with cardboard on the floor but they have a table and chairs but that's how they do it you know what i mean like the tradition and the culture is just so thick um that's pretty amazing and i think those are some of the the last true you know subsistence hunters after those people up there and one of the cool things after we've done the walrus hunt um i i just wanted to stick around for a while and check the community out check the barons out so we went for a drive one day and ran into this older Inuit couple who were out uh, fishing for char and ended yeah. up finding out he was he was the mayor at one time and he was he was quite so he was quite proud of of the area and to show us and then so his wife's cleaning this char with an ulu and uh-huh. uh so they were full of eggs. So they were coming up the river to spawn. And, you know, he's just eating these eggs as fast as he can, like right out of the char. And um, he goes, you want to try some? And I'm like, you bet I do. And uh, <laughs> I could see why he was eating them so fast, man. They were good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And, yeah, like kind of, I'm going to be flip-flopping a bunch here now. Um, but the but the bull walrus, like that's interesting. How do you... How do you find like a bull? Like, do you go by the size of their tusks or? Yeah. So their tusks are like very thick and very long compared to the females. Like it was super easy to tell. And I mean, like I said, I'd never seen a walrus. And, you know, after looking at him for 10 or 15 minutes, I could easily tell a male from a female. And, you know, it didn't take long to figure out which ones were the biggest ones. Yeah. And then like, uh, you know, obviously this is a huge learning curve with you. You're with some, you know, local guides, but what was some of the things that they were saying? Like, was there a shot preference? Was there, you know, you got to wait till they're looking a certain way. Like I just, when I picture a walrus, I'd almost think you could, there's no broadside to them. Like there's, it's just yeah that. and i mean they harpoon a lot of the walrus and things like that so even they were a little bit sketchy on on shooting them with a gun so okay. i actually shot it like right where the neck meets the skull and okay. um, it just flopped over and so that was the worst of it though like it so we didn't want it to get in the water because if they get in the water you can lose them because they'll sink right. uh so this that's why i wanted to do it up on land and so i shot it and he was on a nice flat rock and he just flipped over and was dead so we okay. start walking up to him and all of a sudden he just does one of those involuntary twitches and then ends up rolling down into a big crevasse where it was 
Uh, the pictures weren't the greatest and it was just horrid. And then of course the tide was coming in. So we were trying to work fast to kind of get all the meat off before we got wet, but it all worked out very well. And then we could pull the boat actually right in there. And, um, so we slabbed it into, I don't know how many hundred pound pieces of walrus and, um, just had a little bit of a, a fire brigade going, just putting meat on the boat. Yeah. What are those things dress out? Like what, what would be the size of them as like a walrus? Like what would be a big bull size? I've heard anywhere from 3,000 to 4,000 pounds. What? Um, yeah. I was not expecting that answer. <laughs> yeah. And I I'm, I would easily bet 3,000. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So this was um, an Atlantic walrus. Apparently the Pacific walrus are bigger, but uh, I would easily, I, I'd easily bet 3,000 pounds. And and you say that, you know, all the meat and everything gets distributed through, uh, through the community. Like that is legit. Hey, like everything gets used. Hundred percent, and I mean it was cool. I mean they they caught a, a beluga whale while we were up there, and you know they went out and shot some snow geese. And um, one of our Inuit guides, the day we went out uh, for the char, you know he's um, gigged a few char kind of thing, and so it, it was cool. Like I, I got to see a, a lot of it. And like I say, to me, it's it's I think it's probably one of the the last truly subsistence uh, societies left, even in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. I and like I said, I, like I was up in Churchill for. I kind of lived there off and on with my job that I was in. And um, that was the thing about Churchill. It was a subarctic to Arctic type scenario. And, you know, you could go, you could be right in the middle of nowhere with really nothing there. But there's like a beauty to it. And like you're talking about, and when you're talking about the sun kind of not setting and all this other stuff, it just like reminded me of those, you know, those areas up by Churchill where there's, there's, rocks and there's small f- flowers and you know small grasses and stuff amongst the rocks but other than that there's not much there but it's so beautiful and quiet you know yeah it's uh, interesting you say I, I worked up at Gillum back in the late 70s oh no way yeah and we used to take the train up to Churchill sometimes or we'd take the train about halfway up and go ptarmigan hunting for a couple days and then take the train back to Gillum and so I know that country pretty well Oh, that's cool. We actually went on a moose hunt uh, two years ago north of Gillum on the Weir River. So yeah. uh, we took the train, got off of the Weir River, dropped all our stuff off, hunted for five days, and then jumped back on the train without a moose. But uh, it was an awesome experience. Right on. Well, this this went to a totally different turn. Talking <laughs> about uh, walrus hunting um, makes me think of uh, what else have you like kind of been doing for hunting lately? Like any other cool hunts that you've been that come to mind? Um, we hunted really, really hard in Alberta this year and probably had one of our worst seasons ever. And Vanessa ended up taking a really nice mature whitetail at the end of the season. Um, our whitetail hunting here is kind of different. We spot and stock whitetail hunt here, which is, um, not typically the Norman. It's kind of open country with rolling hills and some bigger ridges in it. So we're spending as much time behind the spotting scope looking for whitetails as, as anything. So it's, for us, it's a super cool hunt. The whitetails are, are small compared to a lot of places in Alberta and Saskatchewan, but, uh, you know, to get a nice mature buck here is it's, it's a real accomplishment because you got to really work to do it. And, um, so yeah, we hunted all 30 days of November and she shot her whitetail on the 30th. So, um, Oh, nice. Yeah. And we typically put a couple of elk in the freezer early and, um, no elk this year. So that bison was, was really a welcome, uh, addition to the, the freezer. And then I guess earlier in the year, um, I was in Saskatchewan on a bear hunt and then we were over in South Africa, uh, just before that. Right. I think when uh, I talked to you at in New York and you're talking about you're going to South Africa right away. 
Is that timing line up? I can't remember. You just got back. Yeah, so, no, we would have been going. So I think we went, um, like, it was kind of late May, early June when we went to South Africa. Okay. And then I, I did the bear hunt in Saskatchewan. Actually, after that, even, there was a, that season goes very late in northern Saskatchewan. So we were just kind of right at that last week of June. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, speaking about, like, whitetail hunting and stuff, did you, did, what was your guys' like, fall, uh, fall like in Alberta? Like, I know here... In Manitoba, it was a weird fall. It was pretty warm, and I just found like there's lots of deer around, but they weren't like showing themselves as much as normal. Like, what was your your season like? Yeah, it was the same here. I mean, very little snow or, or no snow at all. Lots of days above zero. But um, I think we had a pretty bad winter kill in 22, 23 winter. Oh, really? um, yeah, and I, I mean, most people I'm talking to would would agree with that. We had a really severe November, December, January even into February from 22, 23. And um, I think a lot of those breeding bucks, um, you know, they're, they're pretty poor shape coming out of the rut kind of thing. I, I think they just yeah. died. So uh, we had to, there's a, a special draw at the Wainwright military base and Vanessa had the tag last year and we saw just oodles and oodles of deer and some, like some great bucks. And then I had that tag this year and it was the worst I have ever seen it. And I've probably hunted it five or six times. And um, just the numbers of deer harvested were super, super low. So I think that kind of bore out, you know, like you say, the tough hunting conditions, but add on to that, the fact that I, I think we lost a lot of deer. I mean, I'm hearing reports of maybe 80% in some areas. No way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I, I, I like I, for Manitoba as a whole, I don't think that we had much winter kill. Like it could be very wrong. Maybe somebody's punching their steering wheel right now while they're driving <laughs> this into this, but like, uh, I, I, in my opinion, boots on the ground opinion in the areas that are, I was hunting, I seen lots and lots of deer. It's just, yeah, just like the, the weather is so nice. And I don't know if they're browsing in the bush more than coming out into the fields in some spots. And, um, yeah, it was just tough kind of finding them, but they're definitely there. Cause I mean, you have trail cams and you have everything else. You've, you do see them, but interesting, interesting. Um, and then I guess I'm going to kind of start wrapping stuff up, but I, I do want to kind of pick your brain about moose hunting. Um, it's one of my biggest passions. So whenever I can solo a podcast, I always have to talk about moose hunting a little bit. And of course, Panoramics logo is the is the moose. Um, what have you ever done the Manitoba moose hunt, like uh, northern Manitoba moose hunt? I killed my first uh, moose in Manitoba. I um, I was born in Winnipeg, and right. worked worked up in Gillum, Genpeg. Uh, went to college in the Paw. So I mean, I, I know northern Manitoba pretty well. But uh, yeah, we flew out of Snow Lake. Um, Oh, I don't know, probably in 1970, what it would have been nine or 78 or 79. And that's when I actually killed my first moose. Nice. Yeah. Um, that's, that's quite a while ago. I, I now I'm just like <laughs> super interested. Um, what was, what was, what was that like? like? You flew in, I mean, was a prospector's tent? Like what did camp look like back in yeah. the seventies? Well, <laughs> we had a roll of poly and we put up some, um, just put some poles in the ground, wrap the poly around that put a ridge pole on it and threw the, so it was, it was basically a, a poly wall tent. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty Spartan conditions. And I didn't like, I didn't come from a hunting family at all. So I never really started hunting till I could drive myself. Um, yeah. never big game hunted till I was, um, I think probably 16 or 17. And, uh, so yeah, so a friend of mom and dad's took me up and, uh, he knew a fair bit, but, uh, you know, not a lot either. And so, yeah, it was, it was a real learning experience. It was, it was super cool though. And I mean, there's kind of that, I, I think probably those first hunts, you know, flying in on a moose hunt at, you know, when you're 18, 19 years old was, was huge, right? Like that was oh, an yeah. adventure of a lifetime. And I think that's what maybe got me a little addicted to what I do nowadays. 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I've like told this story before too, but I remember like my first moose I ever harvested with my bow and that was like the day I knew I was like a hunter, you know, I knew I was supposed yeah. to be in the outdoors. Like it was so exciting. Um, you know, my, I had my father with me and he wasn't with me when I shot him, but he was with me uh, afterwards. And, you know, just everything around that one moose that I shot is just like basically made me addicted to being outside and being, being hunting as much as I can. So, um, yeah, hunting in uh, Northern Manitoba at Snow Lake in the 79 would be, would be interesting. That's for sure. Well, yeah. And I mean, um, we ended up killing like a 50 inch bull, which I didn't have any clue no what a big moose was or anything, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Um, and if you don't mind me asking, like, what were you doing up in Gillum and Genpig? Were you working with Mantle Hydro or? Yeah, I did. Um, I was actually an industrial mechanic for, I, I did my apprenticeship as a millwright with, um, with Manitoba Hydro. Oh, nice. And then yeah. how, how many years did you spend here before moving to West? Uh, so I spent three years up North working for hydro and then spent another, I don't know, probably no, six or seven years in Winnipeg, um, as a horseshoer. And then, oh, really? uh, that's yeah, uh, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's, that's a, that's a natural progression from being an industrial mechanic, <laughs> isn't it? So, um, and then came out to Alberta actually on a, just a holiday and, um, saw three bighorn rams, um, just in the mountains while we were driving and I went, we're moving oh, and, yeah. uh, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you have a little bit of a relationship with, with sheep. I mean, I, your name on Instagram, isn't it? Or your emails has sheep in the name. So yeah. what's your, you have a little obsession with uh bighorn sheep or what's that? What's that all about? Yeah. I mean, probably for close to 30 years of my life, I just, I lived and breathed sheep hunting. I mean, I was, I was fortunate enough to take a grand slam and finish it in 2020. So um, you know, that was something I never imagined I could ever do, but I just, yeah, I've lived and breathed sheep hunting. I mean, that our whole summers were spent scouting sheep, you know, September, October were spent hunting sheep, um, you know, got a few opportunities to go film some sheep hunts up in Northern British Columbia, um, and the Yukon, and then actually got some opportunities to guide sheep a little bit. And then, uh, finally got my own opportunities. I ended up taking a stone sheep in BC and then a doll sheep in the Northwest territories, and then finished my Grand Slam in 2020 in Mexico with the desert sheep. So, and then, oh, wow. yeah, and killed a few, uh, a few bighorns in Alberta. I haven't taken many. I've only taken three bighorns in 38 years of hunting them in Alberta, but been with lots of buddies when they've taken them. Uh, Vanessa got a, her, her first bighorn with me. So, oh, yeah. yeah, sheep are um, a bit of an addiction. And, and what is it? What is it? Because, and I'll, I'll ask you this question after kind of telling you my thing, but when it comes to moose, I don't know what it is about them, but the one thing I do know is when you get up to them, they're like these big muscular, like kings of the bush type animals. And you just like have the utmost respect for what they go through. You know what I mean? They get big for a reason. What is it about sheep that make you just like addicted to them? Um, I think for me, it's just where they live. I mean, I need to live close to the mountains. I mean, I can walk out my door and look at the mountains. We go to the mountains often and, you know, just hunting sheep in the mountains. Um, it's, it's a real physical challenge. It's a real, it's a super big mental challenge. And I think that's what drives me to do it. It's, um, you know, it's not something that many people do. I think we only have 2,500 licensed sheep hunters out of 145,000 hunters in Alberta. So it's, um, you got to be a little bit crazy to do it. Um, you know, I've got more injuries and frostbite and, you know, broken huh. things from sheep hunting. And um, to me, that's just what makes it great. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, you've been hunting since forever (laughs) and with all due respect, but, um, you must have the one survival story now that you're talking about being up in the mountains and being all over the Western Canada, you must have that one, one story where you, you know, a little bit, maybe survival, a little scared. Do you have one of them kicking Uh, in your brain? Yeah, probably a few. I mean, I've, I've bandaged and patched and splinted a lot of people up over the years and I've been pretty lucky not to, to hurt myself too badly touch wood, but, uh, Probably actually the first ram that I killed, uh, we were super green, didn't have a clue what we were doing and hiked back about, um, it was, I don't know, eight or 10 hours back in the mountains, backpacked in and we ended up spotting a couple rams up on top of the mountain and it was the day before season. So we decided, well, we're going to go up and camp just four or 500 yards below them and uh, we'll be ready for them And in the morning, which in hindsight was stupid. It was only like an hour and a half, two hour hike up to them. We should have stayed in camp. But um, so we went up there and it was it was a beautiful evening. And um, I had a rain suit and a garbage bag. That was everything I had for survival for the night. Uh, my buddy didn't have the garbage bag. So about 1030 at night, it just started to absolutely pour rain Oh, and uh, there was lightning striking below us, and it was it was probably one of the most intense, scary things I've I've ever been in in my life. And then about two or three in the morning, it it froze and started to snow, and oh, woke gosh. up in the morning probably had over two feet of snow on top of us. Uh, my feet were frostbitten, and we were wet and cold and hypothermic. So we crawled back down to camp, which wasn't much more than a lean to, but. Um, we got a, a fire going down there and got warmed up and licked our wounds for a day or two. And then I actually did go back up and I got a sheep on, on the day three of the season, but, uh, no yeah, we were probably lucky to, to live through that one. And I don't know, we've had lots of close encounters with grizzlies and things like that over the years, but, uh, pretty lucky yeah. so far. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. It's surviving survival stories. And I mean, uh, they are always super interesting to me as well. I mean, chase and myself when we were sent on the weir river that i was talking about earlier and we decided to go down river and the other two guys around us went up river while well, we messed our motor up so we were stuck down river um, no. in the middle of the afternoon so we're like sitting there on the edge and we're a couple miles from camp and we're like well there's no way these other guys are coming like to find us right now there's no way we can paddle this river back upriver to camp because it was going pretty quick so we decided to set up shop and same thing it started uh well this was october um or late september but anyways it started snowing in the middle of the night and we had you know we had enough stuff to obviously say night we actually had one of those zolios or whatever and just in case we didn't push it but we just thought you know we'll wait here and if anything else we'll walk back in the morning but it does uh, make you think though hey eh? like you always got to be prepared Oh, totally. I did. I actually just wrote an article a few months ago called "When the Extraordinary Becomes Ordinary," and I mean, okay. I, I think we take so much of this for granted now. Um, I had a buddy of mine just go over to um, Tajikistan on a on an ibex hunt, and you know they lived in a cave and everything else. And to him, it was just like everyday stuff, right? And I'm, yeah. you know, I'm kind of going, yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, but you don't realize that for 99.9 percent of people, that's the most extreme adventure they could imagine. So. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty blessed to you know to live that kind of a life. Yeah, no kidding, eh? Um, TJ, the other thing before we get wrapped up is the reason why we want to get you on too is that you are having some milestones this year with your TV show. Yeah, so we're actually celebrating our 25th year of a broadcast, 
Um, so that makes us Canada's longest running in, independently produced hunting show. And, and I would say we're probably the longest running hunting show. There's a show out of Ontario that does hunting and fishing that's been definitely on longer than us. But, um, you know, for a pure hunting show, um, like we've been on longer than Red Fisher, even if you can, if you can believe that. <laughs> I don't know. There's some guy at a BC named Shockney or something too. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I like to kid him that we've been on air longer than him too. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that is a big milestone for us. We started filming in 1999. And uh, I actually did uh, a television show out of Saskatchewan for about five or six years prior to that, a fishing television show. So that's kind of where I got. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been on television a long time, but Outdoor Quest TV itself is, uh, yeah, we're just celebrating our 25th season, which is so hard to believe. Well, congratulations. And Thank you. You, you kind of answered my question because I was going to say, you know, looking back on your 25 years, how did it start for you? Uh, obviously, you're in like you said earlier too, is that you get, got the gift of gab and you're in TV and everything else. But over those 25 years, um, probably a lot of learning curves. Is there anything that you would, uh, you know, give some advice to maybe some of these, the younger generation or whoever that might be starting on YouTube or social media or whatever it may look like. Is there any advice you'd have for 25 years in the business? Uh, make a business plan. Like if you're getting into it as a business, make a business plan. I mean, and you know, we've made money since day one, never much, but, um, you know, we always had a plan going in that this was a job. We've always treated it like a job. I mean, one of the best jobs in the world, but uh, yeah, yeah. but it certainly got easier. I mean, I, I was just thinking about that today. When we started, um, you know, we had to hire a cameraman. His camera was worth about $50,000 and this was 25 years ago. So um, yeah, yeah. I remember we went into British Columbia and did a, a pack trip on the armed horses and we had to have one horse just for the batteries that we needed oh, for wow. that trip. You know, now I can throw five batteries in my backpack and be gone for a week and it's easy. So, um, you know, our edit suite back then, we had, um, when we first got, we first used to start tape to tape. And then when we went uh, nonlinear, he had a, a computer system and he had this huge array that was fan cooled and everything else. And it was 16 gigs. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and his edit suite at that time was probably worth $150,000. And, you know, so things have definitely got cheaper, but um, I would still say, you know, spend the money on, on some decent equipment, um, do good audio, uh, but yeah. make sure people can hear you talk and everything else. And I mean, audio is, I mean, I probably spend five or six hours just balancing audio on every show we do. I mean, I, I want my audio to be perfect and it, it just, drives me nuts when there's a glitch in the audio or a little bit of wind gets in or something. And, you know, we film in some pretty extreme conditions and, you know, very little of our stuff is ever set up. It It's over the shoulder gorilla type shooting. And, and I, I guess going back to that too, you know, make a niche for yourself. I mean, I think that's people try to be everything to everyone and you'll fail. I'll guarantee you'll fail. Like there's lots of people don't like our show. I'm happy with that. But there's lots right. of people who do like it. And we've stayed true to our vision from day one. Um, we think of our camera as our viewer. And they're looking over our shoulder. Uh, they're with us on the hunt. And a, a lot of people have talked, you know, that they feel like they're on the hunt with us. And, and to me, that's the biggest compliment they can give us. Like, we're not a super slick production. It, you'd be shocked. Maybe 10% of our footage is shot off a tripod. Most of it's handheld. Some of it's shaky. I'll never yeah. apologize for that. That's what makes it real. That's I think it's that raw, real feel that the people like about our show. And like I say, some people don't like it, and that's fine. 
Yeah, there's always going to be people that don't like whatever it is, A, B, or C. But and like, that's the thing, in my opinion, like the uncut version of anything is 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 interesting, and and that's my opinion. But and like the same with like the podcast side of things, right? Like our, for instance, our podcast is like really non-edited, other than like editing an intro and outro out of it. Um, it's just kind of like off the off the cusp and say what you want. And, and we'll record it. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people appreciate that rawness of, of what it is. Right. Um, but yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, that's an awesome job that you've been doing it for that long. Um, I know I've grown up watching, uh, some of your programs. Is there anybody that you're watching in particular nowadays in the last couple of years that you're kind of, uh, interested in seeing what they're up to? Um, I love African shows. So Tracks Across okay. Africa is one that uh, we always watch. Ivan Carter is another one that's, um, I like Shockey stuff, especially some of his older stuff. Like he lived some of the biggest adventures and, you know, some of the adventures he went on were inspiration for me to go do those adventures too. So it's funny, you know, people talk to us a lot about, we want to see more Alberta stuff. We want to see more deer. We want to see more of this. I don't like watching stuff I can do every day. I want to see stuff that makes me dream, stuff that makes me want to go do it. So then that's yeah. just me. So like I say, you know, don't try to be everything to everyone. Just stay true to your vision, stay true to who you are. But uh, yeah, if, if a show makes me dream a little bit and makes me maybe pick up the phone after and make some inquiries about that hunt, um, that's a successful show to me. Yeah. Right on. And where can people find you? I know uh, you got Instagram, Facebook, but what are your handles on there? Where else can you find you on YouTube or any, anywhere else? Yeah. So we're Outdoor Quest TV on Facebook and Instagram. Um, you can find us at Outdoor Quest TV on YouTube. And uh, we just moved over to Wild TV for 2024. So you can catch oh, us right over on. there. And yeah, we uh, were on Sportsman Channel for quite a few years and uh, just made the move to Wild in January. So our new season started January 1st. So um, everything you're seeing now is fresh and new. And uh, yeah, folks over there have been treating us really well. That's cool, man. Right on. Well, I'm going to start um, closing things out here. And I, you know, before we leave today, I just want to say, uh, well, obviously, congratulations on, on your success and your successful, you know, TV show and, and everything else. And I also want to say, like, uh, you know, I we we had you on the podcast. I've never met you. We had you on the podcast. Then I meet you at the the Yorkton Outdoor Show, or the Parkland Outdoor Show. Uh, we had a chat there in my booth, and you know, it's it's guys like you that really make me want to achieve better and bigger things in the outdoor industry, and and help spread the word and have conversations because I think that uh, we need more people like yourself to have these conversations to educate. Um, to pass down, etc. So, thank you for everything that you've done and everything that you have been doing. And I wish you all the best of luck this year, TJ. I, I hope we can uh, get together again and chat some more. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I mean, it's you know shows like yours that are the future kind of thing. So, old guys like me are on the way out. So it's it's good to see you know like you say, I guess people following in our footsteps. It um, it's going to just make a better future for hunting all around. Yeah. Have you ever thought of uh, doing a podcast? I mean, like you said, you have the gift of gab. Uh, you know what? During COVID, I think everybody did a podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, we did, uh, I think, about eight or ten uh, kind of vlog type podcasts that okay. you can find on our YouTube channel. And I just found, you know what? I can't dedicate enough time to it. Um, it has some yeah. unbelievable guests just because I know some good people. But I, I just, I mean, I admire people like you doing it who can you can dedicate the time to it and you know do a professional job for me it was like click on 
you know the camera on zoom talk to somebody for an hour and shut it off and and publish it and uh, that's not the way to do a podcast and there was there was no money in it there was no future in it so we stopped doing it but we had a lot of fun during um you know during covid and it was a great chance to catch up with some old buddies who actually you know were some pretty big names in the industry so that was fun but no no interest at all anymore no <laughs> right on all right man well if you have anything else now's the time to say it and if not uh, we'll catch you catch you on the next show yeah just thanks for having me right on man take care thanks you too well that was a really great podcast with tj um i hope you guys enjoyed it we just have a really quick little update for you here before we go um if you are checking out the panoramic outdoor store in the near future here it will look a little bit different when you land on that page we are just going through some inventory and making sure that coming into this new year that we have all our numbers correct so if you land on the page and it looks different do not be alarmed we will be back up and running as soon as possible yeah that's right it won't take us long to count all the stuff in our basement and make sure it's uh, (laughs) reflected accurately on the website you know that's uh (laughs) that's something that we kind of got it's still something that we're getting used to with that you know since we came on with panoramic and taking over sort of the inventory in the store and really just trying to fit in in another place and oh man it's uh i don't get to do much of it i think april does a lot of the back end stuff there but you know it definitely has a a a nice place in our heart is the inventory for the store (laughs) also a nice place in our home it is a (laughs) A nice place in our spare bedroom downstairs (laughs) it's actually i i have gotten i i don't remember if i did it before you came home or after you came home but it has gotten more organized it's just now that i know that i need to do this inventory for year end there's like it's kind of exploded everywhere but once i get inventory done it'll be packed away nicely and it's i don't know actually a good little spot so you know we got lots be... available too so look look for that store to be fi- fired back up soon yeah definitely we we had recently gotten a restock of sweaters so our hoodie style sweaters uh, are restocked for multiple different sizes so once the store is opened back up after inventory uh, you should see that reflected and see all those sizes in there and uh, don't forget like at the outdoor show Sheldon will be probably having a bunch of those items there yep. Right? Yep. so he's if, planning uh, to take know, a bunch of inventory some, save some bucks on shipping you know come come see us at the uh, at the show at the outdoor show on April 26, 27 and 28 awesome well have a great evening everyone and look forward to uh, seeing you on the next one thanks for listening